0: Hello, I'm Bruce Selry. This is Moolala, Money Made Simple. For Canadians who identify as Muslim, buying a home and securing financing that respects their faith can be complicated. As a result, some companies are exploring halal financing options. Waleed Hijazi is a professor at the Rotman School of Management. He's here to take us through some of these options and how they work than a wealth transfer strategy that can help you save on tax. It's called cascading insurance. Michael Dutra, president of Michael Dutra Estate Planning and Insurance, is here to explain how that works. And Indigenous communities are often taught uh, about never taking more than you need. As a result, when it comes to money, accumulating wealth can be sometimes seen as greedy. So a number of Indigenous entrepreneurs came together for a session to shift that thinking. Nicole McLaren is an Indigenous entrepreneur. She's here to share her knowledge about how to do that. And if you belong to a family with a high net worth, you may need additional support when it comes to managing your finances. This can include learning the necessary financial literacy skills, and some uh, families turn to family offices as a way to help them do that, amongst many other things. Stephanie Dean is Manager of Financial Literacy at RBC Family Office Services, She's going to talk about what literacy looks like for high net worth families. Plus, talking about finances with your significant other can be really uncomfortable, and you might not even know where to start the conversation. Financial therapist Erica Wasserman created something that she calls the financial conversation cards. This is Moo La La, Money Made Simple, brought to you in part by Credit Canada, the first and longest standing nonprofit credit counseling agency in the country, and by Home Equity Bank, provider of the CHIP reverse mortgage. Let's get started. There are more than 1 million Muslims living in Canada today. And one aspect of the religion is something called halal, a word that describes what is permissible. You've probably seen it in the grocery store, right, on a package of meat, halal meat. But the relevance of halal is much broader than just what a Muslim person would eat. It includes how they bank, too. Walidi Jazi is a professor of economic analysis and policy at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. And he joins us now to talk about halal financing. Hello there.
1: Hi, Bruce. I hope all is well.
0: All is well. We talked about this a couple of years ago on a different program that I hosted, and I love that we're getting back to it. Uh, I want to start by asking you to provide the context here. How is halal relevant in personal finance?
1: Yeah. The issue around Islam, it's Uh, a way of life, it encapsulates everything that people do, including what they eat, how they dress, but also how they manage their financial affairs. And when you think of Islamic finance, there are some similarities, but there are many differences to conventional finance. And one of the things that the Prophet forbid Muslims from engaging in is interest. So Muslims are not allowed to earn, or pay interest in any of their financial affairs.
0: Uh, That is a pretty big deal in Canada's housing market, given that you can't get anything for less than, practically less than a million dollars, depending on where you live. So what is the way to um, operate in a way that is consistent with the faith, but also get financing for a house?
1: Yeah, so as you say, you know, with housing prices going up and up and up and so many Muslims, they've not been able to participate in the real estate market. So they're kind of forced to rent. And so they've really lost out on a lot of the equity that they could have generated had they bought. So in Islam, it's not forbidden for a company helping people to buy homes to make a profit. Mm -hmm. So when you hear that a Muslim gets a mortgage and doesn't pay interest, it doesn't mean they're getting money for free. All it means is that the way the financing is structured, it's structured in a very different way. So in the end, Bruce, what ends up happening is if you get an Islamic mortgage or a conventional mortgage, roughly speaking, you end up paying about the same amount. But the payments that you're making to the financial institutions are not interest, they're profit.
0: And how does that work? Is it so complicated that I should just not ask that question, or is it relatively simple? No, it is
1: relatively simple. And, but there are several models, and most of the listeners won't understand these two terms, Mm. but those that are well versed in Islamic finance do. But there's something called a murabaha Mm -hmm. and a musharaka. These are the two general ways in which to buy a home with a murabaha which is perhaps the simplest and in the context of the relationship between conventional and Islamic finance, these are the two points where they look almost the same. Mm. And in that situation, there is suppose you buy a home and it's a million dollars. If you were to go to a bank and get a 5% interest rate, perhaps over the amortization, you end up paying the bank $2 million. With an Islamic finance, what ends up happening is the bank buys the home on your behalf for a million, sells it to you for two million. So that markup that you otherwise would have paid as interest is just profit. And now what happens is the house is amortized over 25 years. You make the same payments. Mm. So you're paying profit rather than interest. Mm. So it looks identical, but it's really different. But Bruce, that's the point at which they look exactly the same. In the other model, which is called the Mushataka model, that's a different one where each month where you make the payment, the share of the home that you own effectively increases by the share of the payment. I see. And the interest portion of the payment is really going to rent, not to interest. So it looks kind of the same. Right. But the process to get there is different.
0: This conversation was prompted by the news of the launch of the Canadian Halal Financial Corporation. So I read that and I was like, okay, we should we should talk about this again. How many players are there in this market? How hard is it to find this financing?
1: Yeah. The challenge in the industry is that there are so many players of varying sophistication and also the extent to which the products they're offering are truly halal. And you know, for the listeners to understand what I mean by that, think about when you go to a restaurant and they can advertise that they're selling kosher, they're selling mm. halal, they're selling vegetarian. It's a marketing issue that they basically say these are the kinds of products that we're selling. And then it's up to the customer to determine whether the food is truly halal or if the true the food the food is truly kosher. The same thing with Islamic finance is that. There are varying degrees of strictness, different schools of thought. And then each financial institution can say, I'm offering this product and it's Sharia compliant. It's halal. But what halal means to one person may not be what it means to another. And that's why the reputation of the scholar or the institution issuing the fatwa, the Mm. fatwa meaning, the certification that it is halal is so very important. There's so much variation in heterogeneity. There's not really a lot of regulation. So some smaller financial institutions can advertise something as halal, whereas it really isn't, mm. but there's varying degrees. So some of the major smaller fintechs are offering products that can be considered halal mm. in the truth in a truthful sense.
0: What are some of the areas in which uh, there isn't an easy connection to financing that unfolds in this way and how the system works? Like, you know, mortgage insurance, CMHC, foreclosure, credit scores, reporting the mortgage payment to the credit scores, like all those things that are like the financial backbone of Canada is, is a traditional mortgage.
1: Yeah. And one of the reasons why we weathered the 2008 financial crisis is because of the prudential regulation and how well run our financial institutions are. I think what's really sad is that no major player has embraced this opportunity. And as a result of that, you've got all of these small players serving this large, you know, 3% of Canada's population is Muslim. It's the fastest growing demographic. It seems to be a real opportunity. And the two major players in this market, Bruce, both report that they've issued mortgages, but their pipeline is huge. Hmm. And the biggest challenge that they have is getting access to capital to fund the mortgages. So, you know, Canadian Halal Finance um, and Manziel in Toronto are two Halal uh, Islamic mortgage providers. They have demand for billions of dollars in mortgages. But then your question about the entire backbone about getting insurance, this is why we really do need major players to enter into this market. Mm. We also need regulatory changes from the federal government so that financial institutions that do move into this market, it's easier for them to navigate the complexities of an Islamic mortgage.
0: I don't think you could find a story about this topic and not find your name in it. You have a clear passion for it and tremendous expertise. When we talked about it a couple of years ago, you were advocating for a real leadership role for Canada to play here. Has anything happened on that front? Have we moved the needle at all?
1: We've missed an opportunity. I really believe in 2016. When Thompson Thomson Reuters did the big report on the potential for Islamic finance in Canada, Bruce, the numbers are huge on the potential for mortgages, but also with wealth management. And Muslims need to manage their entire financial affairs, and no major financial institution has moved into that. So these smaller players are moving there. But also at the Rotman School of Management where I teach, we had Canada's first MBA course in Islamic finance. There were waiting lists to get into the course, and I'd wow. like to think it's because I'm such a popular professor, but <laughs> it's really because it's such an important topic, but what we've seen over time is demand for the course slipped because all of the excitement that was happening when you interviewed me before in right. Right. that 2016 uh, Thompson Reuters report, there was so much enthusiasm and excitement. And it's fizzled away, but I'm really, really excited with Canadian Halal Finance and Manziel. I consider them both really important Mm. to move this industry forward on the personal finance side.
0: Really appreciate you taking the time, and I really appreciate your relentless support of this as an idea because it's, I can see it making such a huge difference for the Muslim community, but also for the Canadian financial sector. If we can crack it, it's something that we could uh, offer the world.
1: And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. It is an important topic, so thank you.
0: Mm, You're welcome. Jazzy, Professor of Economic Analysis and Policy at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. He joined us to talk about halal financing. And this is like the tip of the iceberg. There's so many fascinating elements here. And hopefully we will see both regulatory change and an interest on uh, major incumbent players to begin to finance this area more fully.
2: You're listening to Moolala, Money Made Simple with Bruce Celery on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167.
0: Talking about your money, it can be uncomfortable, it can be hard to get started. And when you're in a relationship with another human, the stakes are pretty high. So this um, next conversation is a particularly interesting one because it is a very actionable um, uh, way to get the conversation started using conversation cards. Financial therapist, Eric Wasserman has created a deck of these cards to get the conversation flowing in a fun way. She joins us from South Florida. Hello there. Hi. How are you? I have used these kinds of cards in many other areas. We have, you know, a box at the cottage for getting people talking around the campfire. Why did you decide to create these conversation cards for money?
3: Well, that was exactly it, Bruce. I was out with a friend. We were sitting at a bar, and there was a couple next to us using some of these conversation cards. Yeah. And they leaned over and they said, Hey, you guys want to use these? I was out with my friend, and we started asking each other questions. And it was fun and it was engaging and we both learned a little bit about ourselves um, and about each other at the same time. Questions we probably would never have even asked or talked about or come to mind. And that's when the idea went off is, wow, what if these cards were actually about money? You know, it's hard to go out on a date and start learning about somebody and be like, so what's your credit score? You know, just doesn't organically generally come in conversation. But if you're forced, quote unquote, to do it because you're sitting there playing a game and the question is there, all of a sudden you're talking about something that was not even on your radar.
0: Right. And, learning and, more. and you don't have to infer from the asker that there's an ulterior motive. Like, why are you asking me that question? Well, the answer is because I pulled it out of the deck of cards. There's nothing like, don't be charged
3: by that, right? Right, exactly, you know, right. I mean, and the questions are all over the place. Like, what were the financial roles for each person in your family growing up? Who paid the bills and who made the financial decisions?
0: What would you, and I'm gonna ask you for a, a, a made up categorization here. What are the easiest questions in the deck? Like you pull that one out and you go, poof, that's fine. That one's easy to answer. And then in a second, I ask you for the hardest. Well, what are the easiest ones?
3: The easier ones is, let me see, I'm taking a quick look here. Ah, what's the next vacation or holiday you want to take? And how much do you think it will cost?
0: Great, fully. That's about dreams and yeah, a little bit about budgeting. It's future oriented. It doesn't flag any of my major weaknesses as a human. Great, I can see how that those would be easier. Okay, what are some of the harder ones that you know? If we were to be watching someone pull cards out of the deck and they pulled a particular card, you'd be like, "Oh yeah." Oftentimes, people struggle answering that one.
3: Um, have you declared bankruptcy before? And if so, what did you learn from it? But that might be a little harder to answer for some people if they do had to do declare bankruptcy for whatever reason.
0: Erica, thank know. you for thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Always have fun talking to you, Bruce. It's great to talk to you. Eric Wasserman is a financial therapist, and we were talking about these conversation cards that she's come up with. There's 50 in a deck. Some of them are super simple questions and some are really, really hard. But I uh promise you, if you go through the whole deck, you will have a new foundation for your relationship with your partner and with your own money. Coming up next on Moolala, reframing money as medicine. We'll talk to Indigenous entrepreneur, Nicole McLaren. And later, I'll speak to insurance expert, Michael Dutra on cascading life insurance and some of the benefits he sees with that strategy if you want some more moolala you can head on over to moolala.ca listen to past episodes Uh, on that website you can search by topic you can search by guest name or you can go to the all the podcast platforms spotify stitcher amazon prime uh and download the show write a review subscribe to the uh to the show so the next episode just arrives on your device
2: You're listening to Moolala Money Made Simple with Bruce Celery on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. Welcome back.
0: Moolala Money Made Simple is brought to you in part by Credit Canada. I am the CEO of the organization and we are Canada's longest standing nonprofit credit counseling agency. Our mission is to help people get out of debt so they can get back in to life. Listen, debt is a brutal reality for millions of Canadians. It starts to pile on for lots and lots of different reasons, job loss, divorce, illness, bad luck, you name it. Our accredited credit counselors are available to help you understand your current financial situation and take you through all your options on how to move forward. And there really are options out there. So go to creditcanada.com. We are nonprofit, as I said. The counseling is free and judgment-free. Money as medicine. Huh. Not money for medicine, but money as medicine. This reframing, for lack of a better word, this reframing of the purpose of money comes out of something called the SOAR Digital Gathering of Indigenous Entrepreneurs. It's a virtual conference sponsored by Square that brings people together for sharing and learning. And one of their recent sessions looked at how to reframe money as medicine. Nicole McLaren was part of that session. She is the founder and CEO of Raven Reads and the founder and chair of the Indigenous Women's Business. Network. She joins us from Logan Lake, BC. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Tell us about the traditional territories you're on today.
4: Yeah, so I'm calling you from my home in Logan Lake, BC, which sits on the border of the traditional territories of the Inflikana and the Shishwetna peoples.
0: Fantastic. I read this phrase, money as medicine, and it struck me immediately. Um, Before we get to what it means, can you give us some background on and I, this is a hard question to answer because it's so general. But how money has been viewed in, in in indigenous communities historically, because it's a very it's a very different history than it would in would be in other communities.
4: Yeah, and I'll preface this just by saying that I can speak to my own lived experience, and I, I certainly don't speak on behalf of all indigenous people's uh, experience with money. Yeah, but from my experience and and working with others is. I've seen this very nuanced evolution of a group of peoples that were historically disenfranchised and have a very different history of interacting with particular institutions such as banks. And they're really not, have not been playing a similar role in our economy in Canada. And as that started to change and you start seeing the growth and expansion of many successful indigenous businesses, there's been a, a shift occurring in how we see money and how we perceive the role that money can play. So traditionally, we have gone from a communal traditional approach to, to our materials to one of earning that money and earning profits with our business and being able to turn that into something that we can use to do good, not only in our families, but also in our communities. Mm-hmm.
0: So I referenced this phrase, money as medicine. What does that mean to you?
4: I think it speaks uh, to what I was saying about really using the money that we earn or raise as a way to empower and grow our communities and families to become healthier and stronger. Uh, so whether that's a mother that's starting to earn her own income through self-employment, she's then able to provide more for her family and, and help her children grow. And that just has a ripple effect through a community, helping them uh, heal, whether that's, you know, economically or just socially.
0: Are there, is there a paradox here or a disconnect between business and this, you know, centuries old drive for profit and this idea of money as medicine?
4: I think, like I said, you know, you've got a group of people that have been historically, disenfranchised, disengaged from that that traditional capital um, system. And there's just a transition into being able to see, you know, how that can be better leveraged for the good in the community rather than something we wanted to just avoid.
0: Mm. What was your experience at the, the SOAR event? What were some of the things that you um, took away from being together in a virtual way, but together still?
4: So not only you know participating as a panelist, I really enjoyed observing the commonalities in a lot of our conversations. And the one thing I saw pre- prevalent through all of the conversations is that no one is going into business for themselves. Mm-hmm. And while we label a lot of businesses as social enterprise um, or doing work in sustainability, you'd be pretty hard pressed to find an indigenous company that doesn't have a foundation of giving back to the community and working collaboratively with other brands. And that's just a unique thread um, that I continue to see when attending events like SOAR.
0: There is uh, you know, we, we opened with this phrase called indigenous communities. And I think we have a sense for the real diversity in so many different ways from coast to coast to coast of, The nations, of the people, of their economic opportunity. If they're, you know, a fly-in community, it's quite different than if they're connected to a a major urban center. What is the the shared learning that crosses some of those, um, divides the wrong word, differences that communities would feel because of so many different factors?
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're certainly not a homogenous group of people, and we certainly don't have homogenous challenges and opportunities. Myself being in a rural and remote community can, can speak to that. But like I said, that commonality is really that community. So very few of us uh, operate in a silo and very few of us have a mission or a vision for our business that does not include giving back. And if anything, that's been the challenge for a lot of businesses is building a sustainable business model that allows you to give back that still allows you to build uh, something that is sustainable financially. Tell us about the
0: Indigenous Women's Business Network.
4: We launched in uh, 2016. I had just moved from Saskatchewan back home to BC, and I was essentially looking to create a a networking group for Indigenous women in the region. Uh, We had a particular focus on women uh, in the rural and remote areas as well as the urban centers and we've just been growing as this informal organic network and we've actually just started to expand nationally and we host events for Indigenous women entrepreneurs uh, every year and and continue to grow into some more uh, digital and curriculum offerings.
0: What request would you have for non-indigenous folks for the settler listeners among us of what we can do to support indigenous entrepreneurs obviously you have a real affinity for indigenous women
4: too what can we do continue to buy from indigenous entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. um there's a lot of products out there that that are sustainability sustainability driven but the ripple effects of your dollar when spent on Indigenous products, specifically Indigenous women products, uh, it will just go so much greater. And each time you are supporting the growth of one Indigenous entrepreneur, they are inherently becoming role models for or other brands that are out there. And your, your dollar will just go so much further. So I just continue to ask you to please, you know, shop local, shop Indigenous. And really with gift season coming up, uh, really think about how you can be supporting entrepreneurs like us.
0: That's great. Nicole, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Nicole McLaren, founder and CEO of Raven Reads and the founder and chair of the Indigenous Women's Business Network. We were talking about a, a reframe uh, for money as medicine. And the, the catalyst to that was the SOAR Digital Gathering of Indigenous Entrepreneurs held recently, sponsored by Square. Really inspiring stuff.
5: Hi, it's me, your debt. Look, we need to talk. This isn't working the mispayments, the collection calls, and all those sleepless nights. We need nonprofit debt counseling. And I found the perfect place. Credit Canada Debt Solutions. They're non-judgmental, 100% confidential. They'll negotiate with creditors and even stop interest. Don't you want to rebuild your credit? You deserve better.
4: Break up with debt. Visit CreditCanada.com.
0: Coming up later, estate planning and insurance expert Michael Dutra will talk about cascading life insurance. But first, family offices and what they do for financial literacy. Stephanie Dean is the manager of financial literacy at RBC Family Office Services. To stay up to date on everything Moolala, sign up for the newsletter. Come on, comes once a month. Uh, it includes all the different things that I do here on Sirius XM and CBC Radio and CityLine and wherever else I'm yakking away. To do so, go to Moolala.ca.
2: You're listening to La, Money Made Simple, with Bruce Celery on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167.
0: Families that have a high net worth sometimes retain the services of something called a family office. And that family office can do lots and lots of different things. It can focus on financial planning and investments and all that stuff. But it can also include work on financial literacy and and education. Stephanie Dean is the manager of financial literacy at RBC Family Office Services. And she joins us today from Victoria, British Columbia. Hello there. Hello, Bruce. What is a family office?
5: Yes. Well, we like to provide integrated expertise to all of our clients, all of our families. So integrated expertise, like you said, offers financial planning, it could be tax and legal professionals, business owner, business succession planning, philanthropy, and then in my role, financial literacy.
0: You're not serving the you know 30 million Canadians that live in this country currently. You have, a, a, I assume, an assets under management threshold. There's something that would um, enable a client to uh, take advantage of those services. What's the typical family? Is it net worth of a million bucks, 10 million bucks?
5: I think across RBC Wealth Management Canada, we have all kinds of clients. They're professionals, they are business owners, they're retirees or regular families. And so rather than focusing on that specific dollar value, I think it's getting the the advisor that is the right fit for the family and the family situation.
0: Well, that makes sense, but if you're going to if you're the client, you've got to make sure that you've got the assets to afford those services. It's not free. <laughs>
5: For sure, it's not, you know, and uh, that's right, you have a good point. So I think within the whole RBC family, RBC wealth management does cater to uh, families that do have assets or assets to manage. Uh, But with the RBC family, we would find a fit for everyone.
0: I understand all that, but if we're talking about family offices, which we are, what yes. would have the matriarch of the family say? I'm going to work one on one with the financial advisor versus I'm going to work with the family offices portion because there's all those other ancillary things.
5: Yes, yeah, fantastic. Okay, um, let's see. So I think advisors across Canada, some of them will work with households with say 250 thousand or 500 thousand. And some focus more specifically on those million-dollar-plus households or even higher net worth, depending on the business model. Right.
0: The reason why this is such an important question, Stephanie, is we're talking about financial literacy in the context of family offices. And that's a different world. Like, the kinds of things that you teach are going to be, in some ways different for families that have uh, more assets, right, than it would be for those who have very few. So I think that's why I keep pushing on it there so that our listeners can say, oh, yeah, that would be a fit for me or no, that wouldn't be a fit for me. Sure. So what would you say are the key, I don't know, principles of financial literacy in the family office context that is different from the general population?
5: Okay, that's different from the general population. You know, the conversations that I have been having uh, one-on-one with the kids and the grandkids of our clients are still that fundamental stuff. Like it's this awareness of money coming in and money going out. It's talking about making conscious choice about what to do with the money that we have. It's awareness about where they're going to earn their own money, whether they're going to be a part of a family business or whether they're going to go out, create their own business or or work. And so some of those fundamentals, they hold across our clients um, that are served by family office services and say the general population.
0: Mm. But the context is completely different because provided those kids don't infuriate their parents, there is a likelihood that they are going to uh, participate in the, the legacy. They may inherit. There may be dollars available for them to buy a house. Like their circumstances are so different from the kids being raised by two working parents with a combined family income of 70 grand.
5: Fair enough. And definitely this um, the financial literacy initiative within Family Office Services is in response to this intergenerational transfer of wealth that we see coming where money is moving from generation to generation. And, you know, you've heard the adage of shirt, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in, in three, three generations. generations. Yes. Yeah. And so we do really want to help those receiving generations um, carve out a path for themselves that is that is meaningful so that they they can use the money to uh, have the life that that they want
0: one of the interesting dynamics that I've heard talked about with those i've talked uh, who work in family office in in other organizations is being a catalyst for a conversation about entitlement and they wouldn't use this word but uh, if you're that family with two parents who are barely uh, rubbing two pennies together you don't expect that they're going to pay for university education because there's no money but if you're raised in a family where there are millions tens of millions of dollars it's very different because you know that your parents have the capacity to pay for anything Thing you would want. How do you um, begin that conversation such that two generations and maybe three can get on the same page in terms of what they're, and I'm using air quotes here, what those kids are entitled to? Differs by family, right?
5: Of course, it absolutely does. And I love that you use the word catalyst for conversation because that is a, a fundamental part of my role is saying, how do we Uh, open up these conversations about what is reasonable or what do we expect? And it's not across the board. It's what's specific to that family. And um, interestingly enough, I'm working a lot right now on carving out information about transferring values uh, before transferring wealth, because within that family unit, you want your kids, the grandkids to understand what's really, what's really important um, to them, to the family before just, um, you know, taking the, the pot or, or making mm. a plan with that money. So I think transferring the values and opening up the conversation to talk about what's really important is key
0: what wisdom would you offer in terms of disclosure? And I'm sure it differs by family, but I know some wealthy families in which the, uh, the evidence of their good fortune is everywhere and other families where they live in, you know like a, a beautiful but average home, they take vacations and the kids have no idea that there are significant assets in, in the bank account.
5: Yeah, I think as with so many things, balance is, is appropriate and is key and also knowing that child. So I think a parent uh, has this perspective or has this ability to know their child and to know what they are ready for and when. And so I'm absolutely a proponent of the conversation and dialogue and information sharing but also just the right amount at the right time. And so, you know, introducing little bits from a young age. So again, there's that awareness and consciousness. And then as the responsibility and the maturity builds, then what is that appropriate amount given the situation?
0: one of the big advantages for those who work with family offices is it really is everything in one place. So there's the planning, there's the investing, there's the estate planning, there's all the things. Do you find that the level of disclosure around the estate plan is higher, that, that uh, Gen 2 would have some sense of what they may well inherit down the line? I mean, because that, that isn't something that's really talked about in, in most families.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like you said, having everything all in one place. One thing we really need to um, prepare for or plan for is the, that incapacity stage. And so, you know, where all the information might not be available to all the family members early on um, as the the mental and physical health declines of the primary client or the primary uh, owner of the assets there does need to be a team in place that is able to execute that person's wishes or support the family through these major transitions so i'm sorry if i've gone off a bit from the direction of your Hmm. original question but yes i think again that right amount of disclosure and a team in place to be able to support the transition.
0: What have you learned about the intersection between family dynamics and financial literacy? Because within all families, there are people who are super interested, super engaged, maybe high-income earners themselves, and others who are lower-income earners who are completely disengaged. And we could reference various television shows that put uh, the spotlight on wealthy families, and there's there are dynamics there that are that are quite different because of the assets involved.
5: Yes, much to my chagrin, not everybody is nearly as interested or excited about financial education or financial literacy as I am. And so, again, I will come back to this um, mantra of let's try and get the right information or the right amount of information to the right person at the right time. And so I think it's relevance. And I also think there's that everybody in the family has a responsibility to contribute to the learning of each other. And so that's maybe creating opportunities to make something relevant or to bring something up or just seizing a moment where, you know, these, these teachable moments. Now, now I have my air quotes up where Mm. something happens and you say, okay, this is interesting right now because it's very relevant to you. And then using that moment as an opportunity to, to bring some concepts uh, into light.
0: You can throw a lot of money at a lot of problems and they will go away, but you can't just throw money at a gap in financial literacy. Can you, Stephanie?
5: You cannot.
0: You cannot. You cannot. The level of engagement is required. Stephanie Dean, thank you for joining us today.
5: I'm so glad that you invited me to join. Thanks, Bruce.
0: Stephanie Dean is the manager of financial literacy at RBC Family Office Services. And we were talking about how do you think about financial literacy and teaching kids about some of these critical principles when the context is uh, that there's a lot of money shaking around. Stay with us. Coming up next, taking out a whole life insurance policy on your adult child. We're going to talk about cascading insurance with Michael Dutra. He's with Michael Dutra, estate planning and insurance. What do you think of the show so far? It's amazing. Well, if you would like to tell us why you find it to be amazing, or maybe you actually don't think it's amazing and you want to give me some grief, ask at mulala.ca is the email address. Ask at mulala.ca. Um, we are hanging out on the radio, but there's also a lot of other, uh, personal finance content on CityLine, a place where I hang out as the money columnist. So go to cityline.tv and you can find some more stuff as well as all sorts of great fashion tips, home design, food, even more interesting than what I do. Mulala is sponsored by home equity bank, the provider of the chip reverse mortgage. Here's the big idea. It empowers Canadian homeowners age 55 plus to live retirement on their terms by providing them with a safe and easy way to access the equity built up in their home. And given the prices of houses these days, that equity can be considerable. The funds can be used for whatever the client wants or whatever the client needs. And that could be travel, it could be helping grandchildren or it could be supplementing their day-to-day expenses. You can access up to 55% of your home's value with no monthly mortgage payments required. Go to CHIP, C-H-I-P, ca to learn how you can stay in the home you love without having to move or downsize. That's Home Equity Bank.
2: You're listening to Moolala, Money Made Simple, with Bruce Celery on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167.
0: I'm a parent, lots of parents out there, lots of parents out there listening to this uh, to this show. And most parents view life insurance first and foremost as a way to protect their families financially in case of calamity, right? But there is another wealth transfer strategy that parents can consider. It effectively is a whole life insurance policy. It's on an adult child. It's a way to save tax. And it's often referred to as cascading insurance. So, how does this work? What are the benefits? What are the drawbacks? Michael Dutra is the president of Michael Dutra Estate Planning and Insurance. He joins us now from Oakville, Ontario. Hello there. Hello there. All right, so I'm going to declare my bias. I'm a fan of term because it's super, super simple, Uh, but you're going to take us through how the whole life approach works. And specifically, let's start with describing this broad and colorful phrase called cascading life insurance. What is it and how does it work?
6: Well, Bruce, cascading insurance, also known as the waterfall approach, is a way that three generations of family can be impacted by one insurance policy. And you mentioned, you know, you're a fan of term because of the simplicity. Uh, This does involve whole life insurance. And uh, believe it or not, it's a little more simple than one might imagine. Um, But it it involves a whole life uh, insurance policy, the grandparents, the adult children, and the grandchildren.
0: How does this work?
6: So a grandparent would initially purchase a whole life insurance policy. The grandparent would be the owner, but the interesting thing is the adult child would be the life insured. So as we know, the cost of life insurance is always based on who the life insured is, what their age is, their their health, et cetera, not the owner. So now we have a grandparent purchasing a whole life insurance policy on someone who's much younger than they are, their adult child. So the pricing they get, you can almost think of it as preferred pricing because they're getting it on their adult child's life. Now the grandparent gets access to the cash value in the whole life insurance policy while they're alive. They can use it to fund their retirement, purchase properties, wherever they, so, you know, see fit. And the beneficiary could potentially be the grandchild. So when the, grandparent eventually passes away, the whole life policy now transfers to the adult child. Now, because the adult child is a life insured, there's no death benefit payout yet. um, When the grandparent passes, the policy is simply transferred tax free to the adult child. Now the adult child has access to the cash value, they can use that for their own purposes, or potentially to pay for the post secondary education for the grandchild. And when the adult child passes away, that's when the life insurance payout happens for the grandchild.
0: And what about the amount that the the grandparent or the adult child had access to? Is that taken out of the the proceeds?
6: Uh, Potentially, yes. So if the grandparent did, say, do a policy loan or loan against the cash value, that would be deducted from the death benefit. If they've never touched it, then it would all go to the adult child, and eventually to the grandchild.
0: Who does this strategy really work best for? I mean, I can imagine if you're, uh, you know, a family that's getting by on an income of, you know, seventy-five thousand dollars a year, and you're really mm-hmm. uh, you know, trying to raise your kids and pay for your mortgage and all that. This seems like a level of complexity that would not be a fit. Is there an income threshold or an assets threshold that you say, yeah, this is worth the time and energy?
6: It's definitely for someone with a family with additional cash flow. You don't have to be worth 10 or 20 or $100 million to do this, but of course, you need the additional cash flow to do so. I mean, you could buy a smaller policy or you could go upwards in the millions, but um, it wouldn't be someone who, on a monthly basis, may not have additional resources to put towards something like this. What
0: are the benefits? Why would someone pursue this?
6: Uh, the benefits are, I mean, you're impacting three generations of, of your own family, right? With one single policy. Um, you're getting tax regrowth from the insurance, you're getting the death benefit. Um, there's no need for lawyers or, or accountants or anything like that. There's no fees to do so it's a fairly straightforward strategy. Once you implement it correctly, you can avoid probate fees. Um, so yeah, there's a pretty big variety of why a family would consider doing this.
0: How much tax could you save? Because there's lots of things that you can do to improve your lot in life. Some are really, really big ideas like the tax deferral of an RRSP or the tax-free savings account. Those are really, really big ideas. And then there's little ideas like I'm not going to buy a latte. I'm going to make my (laughs) coffee at home. Not a big idea. Provide us some context here. How big an idea is this?
6: So it, let's say you're a grandparent and you're looking for some way to save money for your grandchild, right? There's really only one option if they're under the age of 18 and that's an RESP and that's a great tool to have great investment account, but there's maximums you can put into that and it has to be used, you know, pending. They go to school. Uh, so a whole life policy is really the only other alternative that you can get uh, tax-free growth. There is very flexible as far as how much you can contribute um you know they can't do a TFSA until they're 18 or anything like that so it is really one of the very few other alternatives that a parent or grandparent can open up when the child is very young so when by the time they're ready to go to school uh or maybe buy their first home or start their first business there's readily uh, cash value available for them
0: and what does it cost so with you know if we were to just talk simply about buying a mutual fund you would have uh the MER, the management expense ratio that would account for the fees of the financial advisor in your bank branch, and also for the portfolio manager who's buying and selling those stocks and the admin fees associated with that. What are the costs for a strategy like this?
6: Well, the cost of the life insurance is always based on the life insured. So if, if in this strategy, the, the adult child is who the insurance is going to be on, it's going to be completely based on their age, their gender, their health, et cetera. Um, one alternative to this strategy is really goes from grandparent all the way down to grandchild, where the grandchild is actually the life insured. So we skip that middle generation, and there's a few reasons why you you know you might consider that. Uh, so the the cost is really based on who you are insuring and how much you want to put. Some families might want to just put. A thousand dollars per year towards this. Some might want to put a hundred thousand dollars per year towards this.
0: But how would you think about it in as close as an apples to apples way as possible? Because I think, uh, you know, there's going to be a fee to whoever sells it to you. Of course, they deserve to be paid. But Correct. how would you provide us with context on how much this costs? So, for example, if you are with a Uh, a fee-based financial advisor, and you've got a million bucks, you're paying about 1%. If you're in a mutual fund, you're paying about 2.3%. So that is an easy way for you to kind of clock the value of the advice that you're receiving. How do you think about it? And when you get a mortgage, you know that your broker's getting paid 75 basis points. So how would you put that into context?
6: Uh, From an amount perspective, a lot of people say they're saving into the RESP, they're putting $1,000 per year, they'll match that with the price of the the, the cost of insurance, um, but of course you can ask your advisor how much they're making on this. You can t- see the true cost of insurance. You can look at um, the actual breakdown of what the quote unquote MERS are, which could be the um, administration costs of the insurance company, the overhead, the commissions, et cetera. So there is a way to price. How, what you're, how much what you're would buying. someone
0: who's someone who's selling these policies and setting up the cascading insurance? What would be the way to think about that?
6: As far as how much they would make? Yeah. Uh, it's typically 50% of what the annual premiums are. That would be what the uh, advisor would would be paid before tax.
0: So give me a dollars example.
6: Uh, so if the premiums are uh, $1,000 a year, $500 would go to the advisor.
0: It's a pretty big margin.
6: Uh, potentially, yeah. Now the $1,000 is typically paid over 10 or 20 years. So it's really 50% of maybe 20,000 if it's 1,000 over 20 years. But it, it's upfront, uh, what's called the first year commission, FYC.
0: And so they, they say that again. So they only, they get a portion of that in the first year and the rest over the course of time, or they
6: get it all upfront. They would get typically this, the, you get the, the, uh, more upfront and then from years two and beyond, you'll get a small, what's called a trailer fee or servicing fee. And you'll get a, a much, much, much smaller, uh, amount in the, in the future years.
0: If this is something that grabs your attention, uh, what is the path? Do you go to a major life insurance company? Can anyone who is licensed to sell investment products do it? Who's the, who's, who are the folks that can help make it happen?
6: The major insurance companies would provide the actual life insurance policy themselves, but I would go to an experienced insurance advisor. I mean, although this is somewhat simple as I explain it, you want to make sure whoever setting it up is doing it properly. So make sure you're going to a pretty well experienced insurance advisor.
0: Would this be something that you would recommend to your very best friend on the planet?
6: Uh, I, I have done it for uh, some of my close friends. Sometimes parents just buy it on their children and the grandparent isn't involved. So I've done it like that for many of my friends and family.
0: Interesting. Michael, thank you for joining us.
6: Thank you very much, Bruce. Appreciate it.
0: Michael Dutra is the president of Michael Dutra Estate Planning and Insurance. And he was here to talk about cascading insurance. I would say I learned something, but I don't know if I'm convinced yet. Maybe it's because I'm not high net worth enough and I'm not looking at aggressive tax saving strategies. Maybe that's it, I don't know. That is it for our show today. A big thank you to our sponsors, Credit Canada, the first and longest standing nonprofit credit counseling agency in the country, and Home Equity Bank, provider of the CHIP reverse mortgage. Our email address is ask at moolala.ca, M-O-O-L-A-L-A Please send us your comments, your questions, your story ideas, your feedback, whatever it is. Um, please zap us an email. You can subscribe to our newsletter as well. You can find that at moolala.ca. On social media, I'm at Bruce Selry on Twitter, Bruce Selry Moolala on Facebook. Thank you for listening and have a great day.